0: Revelation chapter 1. I'm so excited you guys and I just have this flood of stuff that I want to share and so I'm going to try and sort through it. Uh, Because of that, because of the the book of Revelation, uh, we're going to have a longer intro than usual today uh, because there's some really important foundational things that need to be laid before we even get into the study. Um, and we're still, we are going to get into chapter one today. We're not going to go far. We're just going to go up to verse eight, um, and part of me wanted to go further, but there's just too much that I feel like we need to cover. Um, I think the book of Revelation is probably the most feared book by people in the Bible, because you can talk about the book of Isaiah or Leviticus, or, or in, and they might go, well, that sounds like it's heavy, or that sounds like it's a lot to study, whatever it might be. But you tell people uh, that we've started the book of Revelation at church. And it's funny, because when, when I mention to people, it doesn't matter. I can talk about any book that we're, we're getting ready to study, and people are like, oh, that's nice. But I say, oh, we're starting the book of Revelation this Sunday. And they're like, oh, really? You know? Um, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, because it is a book that there's some heavy stuff. There are some things that uh, are confusing if you don't understand some foundational principles. And uh, my goal is to, first of all, show how important the book of Revelation is to all believers. Uh, and I think it's avoided by a lot of believers. that Oh, I don't understand it. I just don't want to get into it. All that prophecy stuff is overwhelming. I, don't, I just don't get it. It's also avoided by pastors. It's a whole lot easier to teach a topical study on faith, or, and those are important, but you don't see too many pastors choosing a topical study from the book of Revelation, right? And I think part of that is because it needs to be kept in context, context to itself and context to the whole Bible. Um, and my other goal in us studying it, I have many, but one of my other goals is that everyone would just understand it just makes sense. The book of Revelation isn't nearly as overwhelming as people have made it to be. It shouldn't be a fearful thing. In fact, it's one of the only, by, or the only letters, uh, books of the New Testament, that comes with promises to those who read it. To those who study it, they will be blessed. Right? And so for us as believers, we're like, that's what we want. We want the Lord to speak to us. And again, some heavy things. Some of the things that I think people, um, again, some wrong ideas and also some really bad teaching on the book of Revelation that's out there, is that there's a big misunderstanding about its timeline, that people try and slice it and dice it. And I remember when Candy and I first got saved, talking with people and other pastors about uh, the book of Revelation. And it was, it was overwhelming because they're like, well, okay, it's a little confusing because chapter 10 actually takes place before chapter 4 and, and they slice it and dice it and mince it up until it doesn't make any sense at all. And they do that because they're trying to get the book of Revelation to fit their opinion. And that is never the right way to approach any book or part of the Bible. The Bible is to change our opinion. We're to get in line with it. We're not to try and get it to fit our opinion, right? And so the book of Revelation has an overall chronology to it. Chapter 1 is is chapter 1, you know, and even when it gets into the tribulation, that's the beginning and it takes us to the middle, takes us to the end, and there's this flow of time all the way through it. Again, it can be a little confusing because we're getting it from two perspectives. You're getting what's taking place here on earth, but you're also getting the perspective from heaven, right? So we see what's taking place in God's throne room. We see what's taking place in the spiritual realm and angels at four corners of the earth, but then we're seeing what takes place on the earth as well. But still, even with all of those, there is a flow to the timeline. It happens in a natural order. These things are linked together, and it's logical. It makes sense. In fact, here in chapter 1, uh, John is going to give us really the, uh, the overview or the breakdown of, of the, how these things flow. An outline of the book. It's a very basic one, but it's an important one. So uh, in verse 19 in chapter 1, he says, Write the things which you have seen. And there's this division of the things that he has seen. The first part is the things which are. That's going to be chapters 1 through 3. And I guess if, let, me, let me something I was going to say earlier, I'm encouraging all of you guys, have a pen out, make notes. I'm going to try not to hit things too quickly. Uh, someone was visiting last week, and they said, hey, um, could you just slow down a little bit? And I went, oh, yeah. Okay, I feel like I've heard that in a couple different places lately. Just slow down a little bit. If you're going to mention a verse, could you just reference it more than once? Don't just, boom, right on by. But in case I don't slow down, you should have your pens out that you can write them down. And and making some notes along the way is good. So, section one, that John is told to write the things which are. Okay, that's chapters one through three. The things which are. Things at present day. And these are going to be the letters to the seven churches. Um, Not only was it God's word to the seven churches that existed at that time, it's God's word to all of the churches throughout time. And we'll get more into that when we get into chapter 2. But the seven churches represent every church. Every church in the world falls into one of those seven categories, at least one. Right, And so, as as John writes, the things which are, it's what applies to the church right now, today. But then section two are the things which will take place after this, chapters 4 through 22. And there's an importance to that division. We're going to get into it more, but again, the seven churches represent... Every church, the church age in its completion. The church is mentioned over and over and over again in the first three chapters. And after that section, it's not mentioned again, except when we, as we are in heaven. Because we're gone. Right? And the things that must take place after this, 4 through 22... This is the unfulfilled prophecy. And I think this is one of the things that just makes my just skin tingle as we think about we're reading of the future events that have not taken place, that God has yet to fulfill, but he will, right? And again, I'm trying not to rabbit trail too much. Think about the things that we're going to be looking at in the book of Revelation, a one-world government, uh, even here in, in the first few chapters, it talks about every eye will see him. Uh, one world currency. Those kinds of things were the things that were mocked for generations. Well, that could never happen. How could every eye see him? And now we go, uh, Twitter? <laughs> Facebook? Uh, you know, Any social media? A one world government? One world currency? That's impossible. That could never happen. Oh, yeah. It's it's not that far away. All the technology exists, right? The things that were mocked, we see it in our generation. Even if it isn't presently happening, we certainly see the possibility of it tomorrow, right? That we live in a day that the world has never seen before. And to me, this is thrilling. This is exciting. The very thing that we're looking at here, these unfulfilled prophecies, many of them are just on the verge of taking place. Some of them have already happened, right? So, the things which are, or that will take place after this, man. Um, And I think one of the things that brings confusion when it comes to revelation, to the tribulation, is that people don't understand what prophecy is about, right? Too often, we just simply look at prophecy as like, oh, this is things in the future. You know, it's a mystical thing, and then nobody will get it until after it takes place, right? Right? Um, actually, prophecy points uh, in three directions, past, present, and future, okay? So for us, as we look at prophecy in the past, we're looking to the prophecies about Jesus Christ, that he fulfilled over 300 prophecies through his life and ministry, through his death and resurrection, all of these things. And to us, that's the proof, the evidence that's given. It's not all the evidence, but it's a big chunk of it. That Jesus is exactly who he said he is. The present um, prophecy, well, these are the things that are, the things that are to present day. Again, it's not always a future event that's prophesied. Prophecy really just means God speaking his word to people. That's all it means. Sometimes that's about future events. And sometimes it's what they need to hear right now, right? Chap- chapters 1 through 3 are John giving the word of God to the churches that needed to hear it right then. It was in the present. And still, those three chapters apply to us right now in the present. But then they also point to the future. And this is where Revelation uh, is, gets so exciting, right? Right? Um, Confusion comes to the future prophecies, those that have been unfulfilled so far, because people don't really know how to interpret them and, uh, and what they're for, right? If we, if we read about a prophecy, is it like in the movies where they have to like, somehow keep it from happening? Do they have to stop these prophecies? Well, no, because then they'd be fighting against God. Well, so then we just give up and we're like, well, it's going to happen. It just doesn't really matter what we do. What's the point of prophecy to a believer? We already believe because it causes us to look up and to know that our redemption draws near. Like I said, you look around the world today and so many of the things that we'll see in the book of Revelation, man, it's like reading the news. It's for us to understand the times and the seasons that we live in. Though we won't know the day or the hour, we certainly can know the times and the seasons. And man, we're living in those seasons for sure. And it's good for us to remember that prophecy, just like those of the past, same with those in the future, they point to his faithfulness, that God will fulfill his word and his promises perfectly every time. And we can look back on all of those prophecies about Jesus or about Israel or about whatever it might be and go, man, he did it perfectly again. And now we're coming to the end of that going, why would he miss the last few, right? If a magician had a deck of cards and he was like, no, I'm going to read every, like, as I show you the card, I'll tell you what it is. And he works his way all the way down through the deck and there's just like 10 left. He got them all right so far. You're probably going to think, yeah, he's probably going to the last ones right too. Right? If God has fulfilled all of those prophecies perfectly, we can bet these are going to be fulfilled just as perfectly. Right? It points to his faithfulness. And, uh, and I believe we also just need to see the book of Revelation as a gift that is given to us. And he, he wants us to understand this. He wants us to understand the difference between past, present, future revelation, uh, and prophecy, that we would not get confused, that we wouldn't be afraid of what's coming or what these things are about, Uh, but that he, he has given them to us because he loves us, because he wants to bless us. So let's pray, and we will get in to chapter one. Lord God, we are so grateful for your word and for the power that is in it. We submit ourselves to you and just pray that you would lead us on this journey as we go through the book of Revelation. Holy Spirit, apply these things to our lives. Give us ears to hear and a heart to receive every bit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Revelation chapter 1. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent, signified it, by his angel and his servant John, excuse me, by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep Those things which are written in it. For the time is near. One thing to keep in mind is that John has already seen the entire revelation. He has already stood in heaven. He has already seen Jesus in his glory. He's seen not only the tribulation, but the millennium and the new heaven and the new earth and all of it. And now he begins to write it all down. And for me, that helped because for a long time, I had this picture like John was in a trance and just writing stuff out on the scroll while he saw it at the same time, like real time. But that's not it. John's already seen it all. And I think that's good for us to know because he knows where he's taking us. He knows some of the intense things that are going to be delivered. And yet over and over again, he'll say, but even so, Lord Jesus, come. Come. Yeah, it's heavy. Yeah, it's scary. But even so, Lord Jesus, come back for us. He has fully had the experience of the revelation. And like I said, now in obedience, he begins to write it down. One little thing, but again, I think it's important. Uh, A lot of times people will say revelations and they make it plural, which is actually understandable. Because there's so many things that are given to us, and it's like, well, wow, there's a lot of revelations there. There's a lot of things that are being revealed to us. But John tells us that it's singular because it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean like, that he's the owner of it. It means that it's revealing a Jesus that we don't fully understand. This is Jesus, not that he has changed a bit but that he is being revealed in full power and authority. When we read about Jesus in the gospel, he came to redeem us. He was the one silent before his accusers. The lamb that was given as a sacrifice for us. He laid down his life for us. And that's the Jesus that John knew. That's the Jesus that John told everybody about. But when he comes back, when we see him here, when he's before John on the island of Patmos, when we see him in heaven, we see him at his return, he is the Lion of Judah. Coming with full authority to reclaim all that is his. It is not tender Jesus, meek and mild. Laying waste to those who are against him. full authority of his godhood. It is a revelation of who he is. In verse 1, we're told what the purpose of this letter is and for whom it is for. Um, It is to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. It is for his servants, all of them every single one, not just a few, not just the educated, not just the learned, not those who are theological students, it is for every servant of Jesus Christ. And it is in order to show the things which must shortly take place. Now it's interesting because there's two terms that are used here. Uh, He says the things that must shortly take place here, but then uh, down in verse 3 he's going to say the time is near. Well, those both sound the same, and some people would say, well, what we must shortly take place. What does that mean? I mean, he said that over 2,000 years ago. It's not that short. The term actually means quickly. And here's the idea that goes with it, that once these things begin, it's going to be like wildfire. It's going to take off, right? And we're given some of those same pictures. In fact, the, the flood of Noah is a great one. Noah had warned what was going to take place. He preached righteousness to his generation. But everything seemed like normal. In fact, it says that it was a day like any other day. They were eating, drinking, giving in marriage. It was just a normal day. But when the rain started, there was no stopping it. That's quickly take place. These things must shortly take place. Once it begins, man, it's on. The other picture that we see several times in the New Testament is of labor pains, and that's a great picture, right? You know know something's on the way. (laughs) But even when you get those initial warning signs of labor, there's a point, once you cross that point, it is on. Same idea. There's a lot of lead up to it, there's warning to it, but when it starts, there's no stopping it. I heard a picture years ago that sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that the end times are like a cliff and that mankind is like running towards it and God has to pull us back, right? We're like, oh, we got really close to the cliff that time and then he pulled us back. But I think a better analogy is like we're running alongside it, parallel to it. And we just kind of take a few steps closer and look down over the edge sometimes and, and then we kind of go back, right? But we're getting closer and closer and when we get to that edge, there's a point where these things will shortly take place. In verse 3, he says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keeps those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Um, there are times when we talk to people about the return of Jesus. And we talk about, yeah, man, the Lord can come back any day. And they'll kind of poo-poo it. You know, it might even be other believers. Oh, no, no, no. See, the the temple has to be rebuilt, and the mark of the beast needs to be put in place, and the Antichrist needs to be revealed. And even then, it could be another thousand years. No. Not at all. In fact, John gives us the instruction that to those who want to be blessed, they're first of all going to read the book of Revelation they're going to hear it doesn't just mean you know the words are bouncing off it means to take it in to let it dwell and take root within us jesus said to those who have ears to hear let them hear same idea to those who hear it and then they will keep those things which means to guard it right and so as we take in this information it isn't just to go well that'll probably never happen in our lifetime it might be a long long way off The reason that we want to take it in, we want to guard it, is because the time is near. Now, this isn't like quickly, this is near. From John's perspective, he's like, this could happen next. In fact, all of the apostles saw the return of Jesus Christ as what was next. Nothing hindered. And people will say, well, well, they were wrong. Jesus didn't return in their day, he hasn't returned in our day but they still lived right. That is the way to live. You know, and I know some people, they've got different opinions on when the the rapture of the church is going to happen. Is it the beginning of the tribulation? Is it the middle? Is it the end? Well, all of the apostles believed it was before (laughs) because they believed that's what was next. And so I'm going to be in their camp. I'm going to stick with them that the time is near and it's the right way to live. Believing that the Lord is not hindered in any way that he could return at any moment sets our priorities correctly, right? If I think, in fact, when we, we'll get into it because we're going to do a study uh, in Matthew 24 before we get into chapter 4. But um, there, Jesus said that those that believe their master delays their, his coming begin to eat and drink and beat their fellow servants. The priorities are all messed up. But those that believe their master could return at any moment, when the master arrived at an hour they did not expect, he found them so doing, doing exactly what he'd asked them to do, right? And it is the command given by Jesus to us that we would watch for our master's return. As I said, there's a lot of things in the book of Revelation that are going to be hard to get. And we're just not going to get old. That's okay. But I'll tell you what, no matter what it is, there is enough for us to understand and grasp the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because we can get sidetracked on all the details. We can get sidetracked on all the, the events, the prophecies, what's going to get fulfilled, what could this be. If we read and study through the book of Revelation and miss Jesus, we've missed it all. Because this is the revelation of him. This is the Jesus that we don't hear about a lot. And we need to understand more. Um, and another thing, and one of the things that's just going to be hard to get, and we'll spend time on it, is uh, th- there's a lot of symbolism in, in the book of Revelation. And that gets confusing because people are like, well, I think this is a symbol of that. And I think this is a symbol of those things. It shouldn't be a, I think because if something is given in symbols, uh, the Bible's already laid it out that way in the past. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And that includes the book of Revelation. So when there's something symbolic in the book of Revelation, we'll find it in the Old Testament, or we'll find it in the New Testament. We don't have to guess. And it is one of the dangerous things as it comes to the book of Revelation, and some of the bad teaching that's out there, is people who are like, well... Here's what that is. And it's nothing more than their opinion, right? We don't get to pick and choose what's symbolic. And that's the other thing i found is you debate with people about the events of Revelation, and they're like, when it comes to something they don't like or something they, a truth they don't want to hear, they're like, ah, oh, that's symbolic. <laughs> that's not really what it is. Uh, yeah, it is. It's pretty straightforward. Again, these things are given to us because Jesus wants us to understand them. So even though they're hard to grasp, even though they're symbols that we're going to have to work out a little bit to understand as best we can, he hasn't hidden his word from us. This isn't revelation meaning it's, it's a something hidden, it's revealed. It's a truth. He's going, look, this is who I am and I want you to get it. This is what I, I'm about and I want you to understand. So he, he wants us to see him through his word not hiding the truth or giving it to just a few. He wants to give it to all his servants. All right, verse 4. It says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. and From the seven spirits who are before his throne, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to him, to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. John writes to the seven churches that are in Asia. But again, while it's specifically to them, he knows it's not for them alone. Not like the letter to the Ephesians right? It was written to the Ephesians. Well, I guess it is kind of in the same way because it it went to the Ephesians, but it was spread out from there. Even more so, though, John, as he's writing this, knows that these seven churches are going to be keys to then distributing the Word of God because it's to all his servants, to show all his servants. John knows also that he is writing the Word of God at this time. Again, wasn't always the case. I still think could be wrong, but when Paul wrote Phile- Philemon, he didn't think this little one-page letter was going to be in the Bible, right? I mean, he's like, I bet this is going to be in the Bible when I'm all done with it. He was just writing to a friend. But as John writes this, he is doing it under the command of the Lord. He's received the entire revelation, and now in obedience, he is writing it all out. He knows that this is a letter from the Trinity to the bride of Christ. He's the delivery boy, and that's all. And not only is it to the bride then, but throughout all time. Now, the seven churches that are in Asia, this isn't the Asia that we think of. Back then when they referred to Asia, uh, it was really Western Turkey. And this was a, a big area as far as trade and travel. Uh, an interesting note is that the order of these seven churches, that it starts with Ephesus and it works its way through these seven churches, it's the same route the road went by each town. It, it would have arrived in that order from the messenger along that trade route. And these were leading churches, uh, or would become leading churches. Not that they were big or wealthy and had lots of influence in that way, but they were churches that were mightily used by God, even though some of them were small and, and didn't have a lot of money. They were still used powerfully by God. That, as I said, it is from the Trinity. And we see this layout, that first of all, from God the Father, from Him who is And who was and who is is to come. It's another way of saying without beginning, without end. Outside of all time and space. From God the Holy Spirit. From the seven spirits who are before his throne. And that's a little bit confusing because it doesn't quite translate into uh, English the same way. But it's actually referring to a couple different places in the Old Testament that speak of the seven ministries of the Holy Spirit. Um, probably the best example, might want to write this down, Isaiah chapter 11, where it's referring to the Holy Spirit, but speaks of the seven ministries of the Holy Spirit. So he's not talking about seven individual spirits, but the Holy Spirit and seven ministries. And then God the Son, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins, In his own blood. Powerful description of the Lord's love for us. One of the things is when it says, firstborn from the dead, people ask the question well, other people rose from the dead before Jesus, right? I mean, there's a few in the Old Testament, certainly the ones Jesus raised, Lazarus being one of them. Here's the difference all of those rose from the dead in order to die again. Jesus was resurrected from the dead to eternal life to never see death again. The firstborn from the dead. John writes this letter at a time of intense Roman persecution. And I like the fact that he makes a point, speaking of Jesus, the ruler over the kings of the earth. John at this point was the last disciple. They had already tried to kill him, Rome arrested him, and they've tried to kill him at least twice. They tried to execute him through poison, and then when that didn't work, they tried to boil him in oil. That didn't work either. And so then they exiled him to the island of Patmos, which is where he receives the revelation. And so as he writes this, I can't help but think that John was going, you know what, Rome is not in charge of the world. (laughs) No matter what they think, it is Jesus Christ who is over the kings of the earth. Perfect time for us to remember this as well, right? With the election right on the horizon. As important as it is for us to vote, and I hope all of us do, prayerfully vote, no matter who wins, it is not the mayor, the governor, or the president who rules. It is Jesus Christ who rules over the kings of the earth. And while they are scratching and fighting and making every promise they can to get our votes, you know, Jesus will always be on the throne no matter what happens with them. And I love that. The ruler over the kings of the earth. Verse 6 says, And he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father." Priests and kings, that's a term we hear a lot in the New Testament, especially referring to Jesus himself being our priest and king. But you know, in the Old Testament, kings could not be priests and priests could not be kings. It was one or the other. The one king that attempted to act like a priest was struck down with leprosy. There had to be a division between the priests and the kings. But because of Jesus Christ, we are seen as his priests and kings. A title that no one in the Old Testament could bear. And it has been bestowed on us, man. And I love that, but I can't, and I know it's just my twisted, weird way of thinking, but I just always hear John emphasizing the word us. Us? (laughs) You couldn't have found more qualified people? I mean, if you wanted priests and kings, there's probably some pretty great people out there, but you chose us? But at the same time, I go, that's what makes it so remarkable. Yeah, there are more qualified, more intelligent, better looking, more talented, all those things. But he has chosen us to be his priests and kings. And to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Then, verse 7, John points to what's coming next. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. And Jesus' return for the church is next. He is coming on the clouds. And again, we'll get more into this. We're just kind of touching on some things today. But his first, what his return for the church on the clouds is to receive the church. And then he returns at the end to bring it all to an end. He's the bookmark or the book ends of the tribulation. His return for the church starts it, his return in Armageddon ends it. And again, we'll get deeper into that um, as we get into like Matthew 24 and Revelation chapter 6. But uh, his return starts. This is, this is what causes that quickly, right? And when he returns, it's going to be like the flood of Noah, like a day like any other day. And he comes for the church, and then it all begins, and there's no stopping it then. And it will be the last seven years of the age of, of man, this age of man. And I say that purposely for a reason, because people say, well, that's, that's the end of the earth. Not actually. Not actually. You've got seven years of tribulation, the Lord returns, there's a thousand years called the millennium, and then there's a new heaven and a new earth after that. What he's bringing to the end is this age of man that started in the Garden of Eden at our fall and will take us to the millennium. And you could even argue maybe goes to the end of the millennium, but his return will end this time this age of man. And again, it's going to be heavy duty. It's going to be the worst time in the history of the world. Things that we can look at in the history books and go, that was horrible. That was insane. I can't believe that people let those things take place. It won't even compare. There's going to be natural disasters. The world will be absolutely out of control. Evil and the evil of man will seem to run rampant. And there will be loss and tragedy on a scale that cannot even be compared to anything in the world's history. But again, John says, even so, amen. The question I've heard is, what is the point of the tribulation? And even as we get into it, and you're, you've, a third of all mankind dies. That's a lot of people. A third of the ocean is destroyed. What is the point of all of that? Well, there's a couple points. Um, First of all, this is the final shaking of mankind. This is God himself begging mankind, repent and believe. We talked last week about that it is possible for people to reach a point of no return. This is the point of no return for all mankind. That all things are coming to a point of decision and that decision must be made. And God literally is having angels preach the gospel around the world. No one is ignorant of who Jesus Christ is during the tribulation. They must make a choice to repent and believe and receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. But as we'll see, most of mankind will harden their hearts and choose to rebel against the one that loves them so much. So that's one point of the tribulation. But here's the other one, and this one gets missed very often. And I think it is so important. We're going to spend a lot of time on it as we go through. God is fulfilling a promise. And that promise is to Israel. That his promise was that they... Would know who the Messiah is, and there are those who say, "Nope, God's done with Israel. The church has replaced Israel." That is wrong. Romans chapter eleven makes it very clear, and Paul says, "I say then, has God cast away His people? Certainly not." And his point again and again in Romans eleven is, "No, God is not done with Israel. He still has promises that He's going to fulfill to Israel." And that's important because, look, if God is going to break his promise to Israel, then God can break his promise to everyone, including us. And he won't do that. Now, Daniel chapter 9. Again, we'll get into it more later. But this is where we find one of these promises to Israel that's so important. In Daniel chapter 9, the angel speaks to Daniel, and he tells him that 70 weeks have been determined for your people Israel. And instead of a week being seven days, they're they're seven years, right? A group of seven years is one week, is what the angel's telling him. Sixty-nine of those weeks have gone by, and they've pointed to Jesus Christ himself being revealed at the, the triumphant entry, the exact day that the Lord was going to appear in Jerusalem at the triumphant entry. That's revealed in the first 69 weeks. One week, one period of seven years still remains, It is the tribulation. It is for Israel to come to the knowledge that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And there is going to be a fire that is set in Israel that has never been seen before. Starting with 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe, men specifically chosen like Billy Graham's, set loose on the world. And they're like supernatural because there's 144,000 at the beginning. There's still exactly 144,000 at the end. Not one of them lost. Israel itself as a nation. They're going to believe that the Antichrist is the Messiah. They're going to sign a covenant with him. They're going to follow after him. They're going to think he's great until halfway through. And then they get it. Speaking of that day when they get it, Jot this one down, Zechariah 12, verse 10. This one chokes me up every time I read it. Zechariah 12, verse 10. It says, Then I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me whom they have pierced, They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for the firstborn. They're going to get it. The promise given to Israel will be fulfilled. They will see Jesus as the Messiah. The Holy Spirit will be poured out upon them and they will grieve as the firstborn that was given for them. But to the rest of mankind, while others will be saved, again, it's going to be the final shaking of mankind, and people will get saved during the tribulation. To all those who will not, to all of the tribes of the earth, they will mourn because of him. But again, John says, even so, amen. Now, for us, as I said, These are heavy things. It's hard to teach the book of Revelation in a fun, light way. But what it needs to do, what I'm hoping it's going to do for each and every one of us is cause us to look up, to know that our redemption draws near, to know that our Lord can come back at any moment and to be excited about the idea that He's coming for us and He's going to fulfill all His word to His people. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we are overwhelmed with the power of your word, and we want to be instructed and taught by you. Holy Spirit, again, as we begin this journey through the book of Revelation, that you would be laying your word in our heart, that it would reach the good soil, that it would bear good fruit, and that we as individuals and we as a church would be changed. God, have your way in us and in this place.